Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. I want to say first off, I feel rather ill-equipped uh, to preach a sermon after seeing such a beautiful display of the truth of the gospel this morning. That God, th- this feeling that we have, uh, this act of generosity that we corporately and some of you individually have um, provided, and this feeling of love and compassion and sympathy that we look into the eyes of this family and feel is the exact same way that our elder brother, Jesus Christ, looks at us. And that he is drawing near to us just as we are drawing near to this family. And so I uh, feel like there's nothing I can say more important than that picture. Doesn't mean I'm not going to try. We're going to be in Acts chapter 19. We have a lot to cover, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right in. Father, we are thankful for a God who is near to us who looks at us in our brokenness, uh, in our weakness, in our suffering, and does not say, I don't want anything to do with that, but Lord, you come into it. You rescue us from it. And then you encourage us and you challenge us and you convict us to be the same thing to the world around us. So God, let us take the truths of the gospel this morning. Let us take the truths of your word, of the expanding truth of the gospel in the, the in the city of Ephesus and in, in uh, the, the story of the early church in Acts, let that uh, help us see how we can radically change the world. How we can take your word and we can love and spread it in, in uh, compassion and sympathy and in love for others and it will radically change the city we are in just as it did in Ephesus. God, and today of all days, let your words be spoken, not mine own. For it is only your word and your power that can demonstrate the beauty and the truth That is the gospel. It's in your son's name. All God's people said, amen. So uh, we are continuing uh, in the book of Acts. And uh, what we've been kind of trailing through the book of Acts is there's this sort of golden thread of uh, disciples and apostles who are going through and they are evangelizing and the gospel is spreading and it is spreading and it is spreading and that is exactly what's going to happen today. Except the main character of our story today, of these really three stories we're going to look at in Acts 19, is not a person, uh, but rather it is a city. We're going to study how the gospel is going to impact the city of Ephesus in a huge, major way. So just briefly, a few things about Ephesus that we need to know. Ephesus was a, oh, and preface, I'm going to sometimes say Ephesians when I mean Ephesus, like just go with it. The city's called Ephesus, I'm going to misspeak. But so Ephesus, it was a major port city uh, that lies, it's in modern-day Turkey. So you think of where Turkey is, um, and so this is where Ephesus is. And it is, uh, because it's a port city, it's really important. Lots of money, it's really important economically, uh, really important to the Roman Empire. And so, therefore, there's a lot of rich people in the city, there's a lot of people working in the city, there's a lot of people in Ephesus. There are thousands of people. They had um, a library, a huge library. They had a, an amphitheater that could seat 20,000 people or more. And there's not a bad seat in the house. You could hear from any seat. You could see the stage from any seat. 20,000 people. They had running water, which is crazy to me. They had running water in the ancient world. This was a place of cultural and technological progress. It was the epicenter, one of the epicenters of ancient Rome. So you think like New York or L.A. or Tokyo to the modern day. But Ephesus was not just a city of technology and of progress, but it was also a city surrounded by myth and legend. And there was lots of religion 
in uh, Ephesus. Uh, one of the legends about the founding of Ephesus was that the Amazons, the, the ancient female warrior tribe that Wonder Woman hails from, came and established Ephesus and then left it to some people and, and they ditched. They said, we don't want it anymore, we're going to our island. And they named it after their queen who's not Wonder Woman, I learned that this week. But, but the most important thing in Ephesus, it's, it's, it's all about myth and legend and religion, but the most important structure in Ephesus was the Temple of Artemis. There was this huge temple, uh, which you can still go to today. It's, some of the pillars are still standing. And all of Ephesian life revolved around this temple. Uh, everything ec- economically, uh, intellectually, spiritually, every aspect of life revolved around the temple of Artemis. And most Ephesians, I dare say I, all Ephesians, were die-hard followers of Artemis. It would be like, uh, they were followers of Artemis like someone in Chicago uh, would be a follower of, a fan of the Chicago Bulls in 1995. It's like, they're winning all the time, everyone's going to be a fan, right? Or it would be like living in Dallas uh, and being a Dallas Cowboys fan the last time the Dallas Cowboys were good, coincidentally, also in 1995. Sorry, Mom, she's probably watching. She's insulted. But so being, in a, being living in Ephesus, being in Ephesian was synonymous with following Artemis. There was pagan worship of Artemis all over the city, particularly at the temple, but there was everywhere. People were decorating their houses with statues of Artemis. People would even carry these small little silver statues of Artemis with them everywhere. It was like a rabbit's foot or like I was like maybe an action figure, like the kids would like make them fight or whatever. But they loved Artemis. They were enamored with Artemis. And one of the main reasons was that in the center of the temple, there was this big statue of Artemis. And the story was that the way that it got there was that Artemis herself had sent this statue from heaven, sent it into the middle of the temple, and that it was there. And so that, was, that statue was the proof that Artemis was real and was blessing, Eph- and was blessing uh, Ephesus, the people of, Ephesians, of, people of Ephesus, the Ephesians. See, there I did it. So this is the city where Paul uh, finds himself in Acts 19. It's a city defined by money, and it's defined by their goddess, Artemis. But Ephesus is not going to stay that way for long. As we progress through these these verses, we're going to see this city is going to radically change. The Holy Spirit is going to overcome some major obstacles to the gospel so that this city can be radically turned on its head and it can become one of the most influential churches, home to one of the most influential churches in the ancient world. And in these three stories, we're going to see that when we spread the gospel, we can learn that when we spread the gospel with the right knowledge and with the right motives, the world around us will begin to change. With the right knowledge and the right motives, the world around us will begin to change. So in these first two stories, we're going to see kind of a mirror image of there's a group that is really loving teaching about Jesus, uh, loving uh, discipling people, evangelizing people, but they don't have all the information. And then we're going to go to another group that uh, has the correct information, but they don't have the right motivation. So if we want to see a world like ours, a world that we can relate to, like Ephesians, we're enamored with money and our idols, right? If we want to see our world changed like, like Ephesus, we're going to have to spread the gospel with right knowledge and right motives. So jumping in, chapter 19, starting at the very top, the first obstacle we see is people teaching with the right motive but the wrong teaching. The right motive but the wrong teaching. So imagine with me, Paul is coming into this sprawling city. Thousands of people in this city, 
bustling, going around, huge city. And Paul, one of the first interactions we have is he comes across these, uh, it says, some disciples. That's all it describes him as, some disciples. And so uh, this is kind of the first interaction he has, starting in verse uh, 1 and going through 3. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, this is one of the, this is, this was, I laughed a little bit the first time I read this. They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So these guys are disciples of John the Baptist. And so they were likely preaching good things. They were saying, repent, for the kingdom of God uh, is at hand. But this group, so they were doing one thing correctly. They were out and they were preaching and they were telling people, you need to repent. The kingdom of God is coming. The Messiah is coming, which is almost a good message. They were preaching about the coming Messiah, but not the truth that the Messiah had already come and died and resurrected and that the kingdom of God was here. They did not have the whole picture of God's big plan because they didn't even know that God himself, the Holy Spirit, was indwelling with his people. And Paul would later write to the the church in Rome, he said, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, then you are not part of God's family. It's a paraphrase. But this didn't keep him, so he sees these men teaching, and it doesn't keep him from engaging with these guys. Look at how he responds, verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they began speaking in tongues and and prophesying. So Paul did two really important things. He, He recognized that these guys wanted to do a good thing. That they were they were zealous, they were excited, they wanted to tell people about the kingdom of God. And Paul recognized that, but he didn't stop there. He didn't say, Yeah, these guys are doing good work. But he did something really important. He corrected them. He told them, uh, you're, you're baptized with John, but I'm telling you, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, baptized in the name of Jesus, not John the Baptist. And one of the most admirable traits about these guys is that they were receptive to change. They, were, uh, they wanted to learn more about God. They wanted to grow. If we don't desire the knowledge of God, we can never expect to reach the lost. We have to want it. We have to long for it, to long to know the truth about God's word. One of the most basic things that we are called to do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to ensure that we are always teaching, always teaching what God's word says about any given topic. Not our opinion, not anyone else's opinion, but God's word. It's a big ask. How do we do that? We have to know God's word, right? We have to know what it means. We have to know how to live lives of righteousness in a broken world. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, have nothing to do with silly myths, but rather... Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, that's how I feel about bodily training, some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. The call to Timothy was to train yourself, work out uh, your righteousness, figure out what it means to live a righteous life. Our lives should be marked by looking to God's word, taking every thought captive for Christ, everything we think, should be for Jesus, exalting Jesus, about his name. It isn't quite enough. It isn't enough. It's good. Hear me. It's good. But it isn't quite enough to just really love Jesus like a whole bunch. I just really love him. I just really love him. Because if you love someone, you're not just going to 
be like, hey, I really love you, and I just have all these feelings about you, but I know nothing about you, right? When a, when a, when a couple starts to date, right, and they're starting to fall in love with each other, they want to know everything about one another. They want to learn every facet of their lives. Or when two friends are starting to strike up a deep friendship, they want to know everything about the other. In the same way, we should strive for the knowledge of God and his word throughout all of our lives with that intensity. We should long to know what God is like, long to know what our lives should look like in light of his scriptures. We should never be the people who cannot give a defense of what we believe or cannot articulate the gospel. If we want to see culture changing in the world around us, then we must, we must start ensuring that everything we speak, everything we, we listen to, right, every morning that we wake up to when we go to bed at night, that everything that we've done have ensured that our minds have been shaped by the word of God. Not by the word of man, not by the word of politics or the news or whatever it is, but that everything we listen to, every thought we think should be conforming us to the image of God. But not only this, this story should also make us vigilant in recognizing through the recognizing people that have a religious sort of veneer or a mask, right? That's a little bit of a topical word. They have this mask, this religious mask. These disciples of John the Baptist, if you just looked at them, right, they would look like Christians. If you just glanced at them, they're preaching repentance, and they're talking about the kingdom of God. That's great. So anyone would be like, yeah, that's Christian. But we have many people today in our culture and probably in our church that go to church and they can walk the Christian walk and they use Christian words, but they, like these men at the beginning of the story, do not have the Holy Spirit. They cannot articulate what the gospel is. They have never had a radical, life-changing experience meeting the person of Jesus Christ. And it is not enough to just walk like a Christian. It's not enough to just walk like a Christian. You must always be walking with Christ. And so Paul was unafraid to confront these men who looked Christian and teach them not to be morally superior, not to say, hey, I'm really a lot smarter than you guys. He was doing it because he loved them in hopes that they would be saved. John Wesley is a, uh, a theologian. He was a theologian in the 18th century. Uh, you don't hear him quoted a lot in Baptist churches uh, because he's the founder of Methodism. So uh, we don't talk about him much, but he had this radical conversion story where he was the son of a minister. All of his life he trained to be a minister. He went to Oxford. He uh, He was a professor of Greek, and he was a professor of logic. Uh, He got ordained in the Church of England. He uh, was his father's assistant minister for, like, a long time. And he even dropped everything about his life in England and moved to America to evangelize uh, the Native Americans. He said, those people need the gospel, and so I'm going to drop everything in my life, and I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to evangelize them. And John Wesley goes over there, and it doesn't go super well for him. And he comes back to England, and there's a journal entry where he writes these words in his his journal. He says, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who will convert me? John Wesley came to the realization that despite all of his life's work, all of his endeavors in life, being related to Jesus, being about expanding the kingdom of God, he had never met the king of that kingdom. He had never experienced life change with the person of Jesus. And then he goes to hear someone read Martin Luther, write, uh, Martin Luther wrote a preface to uh, Romans, sort of uh, just reflecting on it. And when uh, John Wesley went to listen to that, he heard it, and he said that he felt his heart 
change. These disciples of John the Baptist were a lot like John Wesley. And there are thousands of people today, and there are people in this room, in our community, that think they know Jesus. They want to work hard for Jesus. They want to contend for the faith, but they have never had their lives changed by him. They have never bowed the knee. They have never given their total allegiance. And for those people, we must pray and be ready to correct and call into repentance and invite into the family of God, just like Paul did. And our prayer is that those people that that don't know Jesus but think they do would respond just like these disciples did, that they would accept and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and then that they would continue in right action uh, to go evangelize. So now you no longer have people that are uh, motivated but have the wrong teaching, but you have people who are super motivated and now they have the right teaching. The kingdom of God will expand with the right knowledge about God. Then we continue on in the story and we see sort of this mirror image. We have these guys called the Sons of Sceva, which kind of sounds like a heavy metal band. I wouldn't listen to them, but maybe it's your thing. And these guys are, are not good dudes. They are um, mystics. They're uh, almost occultists. They are doing magic. They're doing these things to uh, conjure up uh, people from the dead. They're trying to exercise demons. It's sort of like some weird, freaky, you know, heavy metal stuff. And so as Paul is teaching in Ephesus, he teaches for two years, and he's doing all these miracles, and these sons of Sceva are like, hey, we want some of that magic. How do we get some of that magic? It looks like it's working. This is kind of similar to Simon the Magician back earlier in Acts. But they were not honoring God, and they were most likely doing these mystic, occultic acts for their own money and their own personal gain. And it becomes really clear, so we're going to jump down to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But... The evil spirit answered them. And this is what the spirit said. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, he leaped on them, and he mastered, or he beat all of them, overpowered them, so that they ran out of this guy's house naked and wounded. Matt Chandler's reflection on uh, uh, this text, he said, if you uh, end a fight without your pants, you likely lost. That seems to be the case with these guys. See, this is a reversal of what we have previously seen. These guys were doing something right. They were doing something true. The name of Jesus is the power by which to exercise a demon. The name of Jesus is the power by which to send evil spirits away. We see other apostles do it all the time. Jesus himself does it. But even this demon, this demon comes out of this guy and recognizes that these people are not actually coming in the name of Jesus. They are simply employing his name to try to use his power. These guys knew that Jesus' power could do all this great stuff, and so they said, hey, we can make a lot of money and become really popular and powerful if we use Jesus' name for our own personal gain. In church, exploiting the name of Jesus will always lead to destruction. It may not lead to you getting run out of a house with, your, with no pants. You may gain something for a little bit of time. You may gain the whole world, but you will lose your soul. 
See, the sons of Sceva are only interested in their own power and their own gain. And using Jesus' name will help them do that. It's a breach, a literal breach, of the third commandment. They are taking the Lord Jesus' name in vain. And they pay the price. And at first, to many of us, this seems really weird. This is a really strange story. Demons beating people up, you know, stripping them naked. they got to run throughout the city. But we know people who do this. We know people who take the Lord's name in vain. We know the guy that just slips into church every week because he knows it will be good for business. Or we've heard the politician say that he has heard God call him to run for higher office. God told me I need more power. Or younger people may hear this, only God can judge me. So I can do whatever I want because only God can judge me. We use the name of Jesus to excuse our immoral and our sinful actions. But when we begin to use Jesus as a political prop, or if we use him as a get-out-of-hell-free card, we are dangerously close to looking like these guys getting run out of the room with no clothes on. We have to be sure. We have to be sure that we claim Christ boldly and prophetically. We have to teach about what he says throughout the world, if it's popular or unpopular, but we must do it with the right motivations. We have to do it in love and humility. Paul writes to, in 1 Corinthians, he says, you can have all the spiritual talk in the world. You can, you can have all the right answers. You can be speaking in tongues. You can be this big theological fathead. But if you don't have love, then you just sound like a banging gong. <laughs> Clanging cymbal. I shouldn't get Mike back there to start banging on the cymbals because that's what you sound like when you preach Christ with no love. Exalting Jesus must always be motivated by love. Our evangelism Our correction, our rebuking, our responsibility, listen, our responsibility to speak issues into the public square, they're all meaningless if we're not motivated by love. If we're motivated by personal gain or or political power or anything other than true, genuine, self-sacrificial care for the other, love for the neighbor, then we might as well be talking nonsense. It is not of Christ. But there is a a positive to this story. When you jump to the end, God uses the the evil sort of misuse of Jesus' name. If you jump to verse uh, 17, it says this. So this this happens. They they run out of the house, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. See, God was working in the city of Ephesus. What just two years prior, if you go to the end of chapter 18, we know of one Christian in Ephesus. One Christian, and he's a guy named Apollos, and he doesn't really know what he's talking about. But then some people come in, and they correct him, and he starts teaching, and Paul comes in, and he starts teaching for two years, and then these people, the, the name of Jesus is popular enough that these guys say, hey, we can use it to get some power. And, and that doesn't work for them, and so now we have tons and tons and tons of people who are coming to Jesus, and not just every normal day people, sorcerers, pagans, uh, occultists, the people in our minds who are furthest away from Jesus are burning their magical books, not actually magical, and clinging to Jesus. They now had right teaching, and they had right motive, and the city has to answer. The city has to respond. So, uh, chapter, or verse 21, we see a city starting to change. So, Ephesus, 
was this great city that was this, this great city of Artemis and is now filling with followers of the way or these little Christs as they came to be called. And there were people in the city who were not happy about it. They were not happy. And we see right here, one of these guys is a silversmith named Demetrius. And Demetrius is feeling threatened on, on two fronts, two different fronts. He sees his silversmithing work going down because less and less, fewer and fewer people are wanting to worship uh, Artemis. They don't need their little idols anymore. It's literally crushing the idol economy. And so what does he do? He gets all of his buddies together, and he, and he kind of makes a scheme, kind of hatches a plan. Verse 25, he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you have known that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, so all of Asia people are coming to Christ, praise God. I lost my spot. And this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. The way that was written in the original language is it, it kind of sounds like a slogan that Paul was going around and saying, gods made with hands are not gods. Seems pretty self-explanatory. And we have to give it to Demetrius in this text because he's right about something. He actually is right to identify the gospel of Jesus Christ as a threat. Because the gospel is not just a message about a still, faraway God in a temple, but it was about a God who was coming and changing hearts and changing minds and changing people and changing entire cities, and that is still going on to this day. So Demetrius is right to be scared. He's right to be threatened by the gospel. The gospel is threatening to our idols. But it was not just an industry that was being taken away. It was their very way of life. Idol worship was as much part of their culture as baseball, hot dog, apple pies, and Chevrolet are part of American culture. Their very identities as Ephesians were being threatened. And this is one of the most interesting verses in this story. Verse 27, Demetrius is saying to his friends, and there is a danger. Not only that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worshipped. What Demetrius is saying is, they are stealing glory from Artemis. They are taking worship away from Artemis. She is going to lose glory. She is going to lose importance. So we have to fight back. They're making her name lesser in the world. Church, we can be encouraged this morning that we do not serve a God whose glory can be taken. We serve a God whose glory is forever. It cannot be touched. It cannot be taken. No image or movement could ever make him less than he is. So we don't have to act like Demetrius. We don't have to get our buddies together and scheme about how we're going to fight against the culture. We don't have to uh, go out and put on our boxing gloves. We don't have to go fight for Jesus and contend for Jesus and say, oh, I'm going to post this or I'm going to say that or I'm going to make this fight, right? We don't have to do that because we're not scared of anyone taking glory from God. He has all the glory and all the honor and all the power forever. Amen. We don't have to be like these scared men because we know the battle's over. But these guys don't have a real God. Gods made with hands are not real gods. They're operating out of fear and greed. And so what do they do? They say, let's start a riot. 
And they send people all throughout the street in this huge, bustling city with thousands of people. And there's confusion and there's rioting and they're all chanting about how awesome and great Artemis is all throughout Ephesus. And it is chaos. The city is plunged into chaos. All because in chapter 18, one guy knew a little bit about the gospel. And then this other guy show up corrected some disciples, taught for a few years, a demon got the better of some cultists, and now the church is so prominent, the church is so effective that this entire city is in an uproar. People are angry against the Christians. They're angry against the church. They're seeing all these things that they held dear, held dear slipping away from them. The entire culture of this city is flipping upside down. And I think it's easy for us to read this story and to read that and say, rah, rah, amen, we, we want to see the culture change. We want to see uh, the movement of the gospel. It's amazing. Wouldn't it be great for that to happen here? Which is true. That's true. That's, this is a thing we, we want to happen. We want to see the culture of the world change and turn towards Jesus. But isn't this true of us? Isn't this riot this picture, this confusion, this uproar, a picture of our internal world when the gospel confronts our idols. See, when Jesus comes and crushes our idols, we don't usually celebrate. We riot. We push against the things of God. We're constantly called to leave things behind, to sacrifice the things we want, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're called to abandon sexual freedom, to abandon boundless financial gain, total self-sufficiency, to throw away our egos. But the second that those things get too hard, what do we look like? We don't look like the guy who's in charge, but we, uh, we look like the guy who is running around confused, angry in the street. Jesus calls us to throw away parts of ourselves, to throw away rights, to throw away winning. And who do we look like? It's the Ephesians. We fight. We thrash. We chant over and over again, just like they did. They chanted for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when Jesus comes and threatens our idols, we thrash and we chant, great am I. I know best. So church, if we want to see a culture changed, if we want to see a city changed by the power of the gospel, we need right teaching. We need right motive, but we also need right whole submission to Christ. We have to let him crush the idols in our lives, and we don't get to then stand up in revolt and say, Jesus, I didn't want you to do that. Great am I. I know better. But we have to respond in humble subjugation to a good king who will make everything new. If you want to see a city changed, if you want to see a culture changed, if you want to see uh, your life changed, it is not to champion ourselves, but it is rather to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, not to chant, great am I, but to chant, great is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the the, the, the riot goes on and they end up in the amphitheater, 20,000 people chanting, great is Artemis. And to be honest, the story does not have a very satisfying ending. All of this, these stories have been building to the amphitheater of Ephesus, 20,000 people chanting for two hours and you're reading and you're like, okay, when's Paul going to get in there and make the case? When are people's hearts going to be changed? But he's turned away and his friends say, it's too dangerous. Don't go in. And he leaves. The picture we are left with is a city 
people that are being changed by the power of the gospel and a culture radically resisting that power, radically rejecting the power of the gospel. And really the last thing we get in this text, in this story, is a nameless Ephesian clerk, not a follower of Jesus, a follower of Artemis. And he gets up and he settles down the crowd and he wants to make a defense. And this is it. This is verse 35. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's calming them down and he's saying, you don't have to be upset because we have been sent a sign from Artemis. We know that she is real. She sent her sacred stone, her sacred image down to our temple. And so she is verified as our God. See, because they believed that the temple uh, held this uh, statue of Artemis and that had been sent from heaven that they could trust God, that they could know Artemis. It's a strange claim to make and he is so close to being right. So close to being right. See, they thought they knew God because they had been sent this sacred stone from heaven. But our God, the true God, did not send a sacred stone, but he sent his sacred son. A son who left heaven, came out of heaven, not to be stuck in a temple and honored and worshipped and sacrifice being made, but no, a perfect son. And he came and he lived among us and he died for his people. We can know God and we can love others and we can lay down our lives for God because Jesus, the precious sacred son of God, was sent from heaven down to earth and he did it all before us. He was right to say an image of God was sent from heaven. It was not made of stone, it was made of flesh. Flesh that was broken, blood that was spilled. So I'm going to ask the, the deacons, the musicians, to come forward as we take this meal together to remember why we're here. To know and remember that we can know God not because of a sacred idol, not because of an artifact, but because a person was sent from heaven. His body was broken, his blood was spilled so you could know him. That is what, when we bite into this wafer, that is what we should be reminded of, the, the bones breaking when the sourness of the grape juice should sit on our tongues and remind us that there was no small price paid for your salvation. And we do this together as a family. So uh, we're going to pass it out. I'm going to come up and give some instructions. But this is a family endeavor. This is a family meal. If you are in Christ, if you are a part of the family of Jesus, if you're a member of a church who teaches from this same Bible, believes in this same gospel, you are welcome to take this meal. But if you're not a believer... If you're not a member of the family of God, we would ask that you do not take this meal and instead you would take Christ and you would cling to him with all that you know how. This is the Jesus who saved a radically pagan and greedy city. Can't he save you as well? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of your church. 
We thank you that you sent so many before us to contend for the faith in love and humility, to correct wrong teaching, to uh, rebuke wrong motive, and because we can have the full counsel of God, because we can know your word, that we can go out and we can see a culture and we can hope and have faith in a culture and a world that can be radically changed by your gospel. And God, we don't have to have blind faith. We can have faith because you've done it over and over and over again. Even just in this book of Acts, Father God, you have provided us. We have seen city after city after city changed. Would you change our city? God, as we take this meal, as we eat this wafer and we drink this juice, would you remind us of the sacrifice that was paid that we could be here? Sacrifice of your son on the cross and his resurrection that we might know him, come close to him, that he would have compassion on us and save us. God, for those who are far, let this not, uh, let, let this not be a time of exclusion, but God, let it be an invitation. Come to the table. If you're weary and need rest, come to the table. If you're suffering and need peace, come to the table. If you are sinful and need a savior, come to the table. God, cleanse us of our sins. Let us repent of all the wrong ways before we take this meal. One of you, it's a bitter reminder of the sacrifice that your son made. It's in his name, as people said.